This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook Chapter 6 Harry Feversham's Plan It was the night of August 30th. A month had passed since the ball at Lennon House, but the uneventful countryside of Donegal was still busy with the stimulating topic of Harry Feversham's disappearance. The townsmen in their climbing street and the gentry at their dinner tables gossiped to their hearts' contentment. It was asserted that Harry Feversham had been seen on the very morning after the dance, and at five minutes to six, though according to Mrs. Brian O'Brien it was ten minutes past the hour, still in his dress clothes and with a white suicide's face, hurrying along the causeway by the Lennon Bridge. It was suggested that a dragnet would be the only way to solve the mystery. Mr. Dennis Rafferty, who lived on the road to Rathmullen, indeed went so far as to refuse salmon on the plea that he was not a cannibal, and the saying had a general vogue. Their conjectures as to the cause of the disappearance were no nearer the truth, for there were only two who knew, and those two went steadily about the business of living as though no catastrophe had befallen them. They held their heads a trifle more proudly, perhaps. Ethne might have become a little more gentle, Dermod a little more irascible, but these were the only changes, so gossip had the field to itself. But Harry Feversham was in London, as Lieutenant Such discovered on the night of the 30th. All that day the town had been perturbed by rumors of a great battle fought at Cassassin in the desert east of Ismalia. Messengers had raced ceaselessly through the streets, shouting tidings of victory and tidings of disaster. There had been a charge by moonlight of General Drury Lowe's cavalry brigade, which had rolled up Arabi's left flank and captured his guns. It was rumored that an English general had been killed, that the York and Lancaster regiment had been cut up. London was uneasy, and at eleven o'clock at night a great crowd of people had gathered beneath the gas lamps in Pall Mall, watching with pale upturned faces the lighted blinds of the war office. The crowd was silent and impressively still. Only if the figure moved for an instant across the blinds, a thrill of expectation passed from man to man, and the crowd swayed in a continuous movement from edge to edge. Lieutenant Such, careful of his wounded leg, was standing on the outskirts with his back to the parapet of the Junior Carlton Club, when he felt himself touched upon the arm. He saw Harry Feversham at his side. Feversham's face was working and extraordinarily white. His eyes were bright like the eyes of a man in a fever and such at the first was not sure that he knew, or cared who it was to whom he talked. "'I might have been out there in Egypt to-night,' said Harry, in a quick, troubled voice. "'Think of it! I might have been out there, sitting by a campfire in the desert, talking over the battle with Jack Durrance, or dead, perhaps. What would it have mattered? I would have been in Egypt to-night!' Feversham's unexpected appearance, no less than his wandering tongue, told such that somehow his fortunes had gone seriously wrong. He had many questions in his mind, but he did not ask a single one of them. He took Feversham's arm and led him straight out of the throng. "'I saw you in the crowd,' continued Feversham. "'I thought that I would speak to you because—do you remember, a long time ago you gave me your card? I have always kept it, because I have always feared that I would have reason to use it. You said that if one was in trouble, the telling might help.' Such stopped his companion. "'We will go in here.' We can find a quiet corner in the upper smoking-room. And Harry looked up, saw that he was standing by the steps of the Army and Navy Club. "'Good God, not there!' he cried in a sharp, low voice, and moved quickly into the roadway, where no light fell directly on his face. Such limped after him. 
Nor tonight. It is late. Tomorrow, if you will, in some quiet place and after nightfall. I do not go out in the daylight. Again, Such asked no questions. I know a quiet restaurant, he said. If we dine there at nine, we shall meet no one whom we know. I will meet you just before nine tomorrow night at the corner of Swallow Street. They dined together accordingly on the following evening, at a table in the corner of the Criterion Grill Room. Feversham looked quickly about him as he entered the room. "'I dine here often, when I am in town,' said Such. "'Listen!' The throbbing of the engines working the electric light could be distinctly heard. Their vibrations could be felt. "'It reminds me of a ship,' said Such, with a smile. "'I can almost fancy myself in the gun-room again. We will have dinner, then you should tell me your story.' "'You have heard nothing of it?' asked Feversham suspiciously. "'Not a word.' And Feversham drew a breath of relief. It had seemed to him that everyone must know. He imagined contempt on every face which passed him in the street. Lieutenant Such was even more concerned this evening than he had been the night before. He saw Harry Feversham clearly now in a full light. Harry's face was thin and haggard with lack of sleep. There were black hollows beneath his eyes. He drew his breath and made his movements in a restless, feverish fashion. His nerves seemed strung to breaking point. Once or twice, between the courses, he began his story, but Such would not listen until the cloth was cleared. "'Now,' said he, holding out his cigar-case, "'take your time, Harry.' Thereupon Feversham told him the whole truth, without exaggeration or omission, forcing himself to a slow, careful matter-of-fact speech, so that in the end Such almost fell into the illusion that it was just the story of a stranger which Feversham was recounting merely to pass the time. He began with the Crimean night at the Broad Place, and ended with the ball at London House. "'I came back across Low Swilly early that morning,' he said in conclusion, "'and travelled at once to London. Since then I have stayed in my rooms all day, listening to the bugles calling in the barrack-yard beneath my windows.' At night I prowl about the streets, or lie in bed waiting for the Westminster clock to sound each new quarter of an hour. On foggy nights, too, I can hear the steam sirens on the river. "'Do you know when the ducks start quacking in St. James's Park?' he asked with a laugh. "'At two o'clock to the minute.' Such listened to the story without interruption. But halfway through the narrative he changed his attitude, and in a significant way. Up to the moment when Harry told of his concealment of the telegram, Such had sat with his arms upon the table in front of him, and his eyes upon his companion. Thereafter he raised a hand to his forehead, and so remained with his face screened while the rest was told. Feversham had no doubt of the reason. Lieutenant Such wished to conceal the scorn he felt, and he could not trust the muscles of his face. Feversham, however, mitigated nothing, but continued steadily, and truthfully to the end. But even after the end was reached, such did not remove his hand, nor for some little while did he speak. When he did speak, his words came upon Feversham's ears with a shock of surprise. There was no contempt in them, and though his voice shook, it shook with great contrition. "'I am much to blame,' he said. "'I should have spoken that night at Broad Place, and I held my tongue. I shall hardly forgive myself.' The knowledge that it was Muriel Graham's son, who had thus brought ruin and disgrace upon himself, was uppermost in the lieutenant's mind. He felt that he had failed in the discharge of an obligation, self-imposed, no doubt, but a very real obligation nonetheless. "'You see, I understood,' he continued remorsefully. "'Your father, I'm afraid, never would.' "'He never will,' interrupted Harry. "'No, no,' Such agreed. Your mother, of course, had she lived, would have seen clearly. 
but few women, I think, except your mother. Brute courage! Women make a god of it. That girl, for instance. And again Harry Feversham interrupted. You must not blame her. I was defrauding her into marriage. Suppose that you had never met her. Would you still have sent in your papers? I think not, said Harry slowly. I want to be fair. Disgracing my name and those dead men in the hall I think I would have risked. I could not risk disgracing her. And Lieutenant Such thumped his fist despairingly upon the table. If only I had spoken at Broad Place. Harry, why didn't you let me speak? I might have saved you many unnecessary years of torture. Good heavens! What a childhood you must have spent with that fear all alone with you. It makes me shiver. It makes me shiver to think of it. I might even have saved you from this last catastrophe. For I understood. I understood. Lieutenant Such saw more clearly into the dark places of Harry Feversham's mind than Harry Feversham did himself, and because he saw so clearly he could feel no contempt. The long years of childhood and boyhood and youth lived apart in Broad Place in the presence of the uncomprehending father and the relentless dead men on the walls had done the harm. There had been no one in whom the boy could confide. The fear of his cowardice had sapped incessantly at his heart. He had walked about with it. He had taken it with him to his bed. It had haunted his dreams. It had been his perpetual menacing companion. It had kept him from intimacy with his friends, lest an impulsive ward should betray him. Lieutenant Such did not wonder that in the end it had brought about this irretrievable mistake. For Lieutenant Such understood. "'Did you ever read Hamlet?' he asked. "'Of course,' said Harry in reply. "'Ah, but did you consider it? The same disability is clear in that character.' The thing which he foresaw, which he thought over, which he imagined in the act and in the consequences, that he shrank from upbraiding himself even as you have done. Yet, when the moment of action comes, sharp and immediate, does he fail? No, he excels, and just by reason of that foresight. I have seen men in the Crimea, tortured by their imaginations before the fight. Once the fight had begun, you must search amongst the Oriental fanatics for their match. Am I a coward? Do you remember the lines? Am I a coward, who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face? There's the case in a nutshell. If only I had spoken on that night. One or two people passed the table on the way out. Such stopped and looked around the room. It was nearly empty. He glanced at his watch and saw that the hour was eleven. Some plan of action must be decided upon that night. It was not enough to hear Harry Feversham's story. There still remained the question— what was Harry Feversham, disgraced and ruined, now to do? How was he to recreate his life? How was the secret of his disgrace to be most easily concealed? "'You cannot stay in London, hiding by day, slinking about by night,' he said with a shiver. "'That's too like—' and he checked himself. Feversham, however, completed the sentence. "'That's too like Wilmington,' said he quietly, recalling the story which his father had told so many years ago— and which he had never forgotten, even for a single day. But Wilmington's end will not be mine. Of that I can assure you. I shall not stay in London. He spoke with an air of decision. He had indeed mapped out already the plan of action concerning which Lieutenant Such was so disturbed. Such, however, was occupied with his own thoughts. "'Who knows of the feathers? How many people?' he asked. "'Give me their names.' "'Trench, Castleton, Willoughby,' began Feversham. "'All three are in Egypt.' Besides, for the credit of the regiment, they are likely to hold their tongue when they return. Dermod, Eustace, and—and Ethne, 
They will not speak. You, Durrance, perhaps, and my father. Such leaned back in his chair and stared. Your father? You wrote to him? No. I went into Surrey and told him. Again remorse for that occasion recognized and not used seized upon Lieutenant Such. Why didn't I speak that night? he said impotently. A coward. And you go quietly down to Surrey and confront your father with that story to tell him. You do not even write. You stand up and tell it to him face to face. Harry, I reckon myself as good as another when it comes to bravery, but for the life of me I could not have done that. It was not pleasant, said Feversham simply, and this was the only description of the interview between father and son which was vouchsafed to anyone. But Lieutenant Such knew the father, and knew the son. He could guess at all which that one adjective implied. Harry Feversham told the results of his journey into Surrey. My father continues my allowance. I shall need it, every penny of it, otherwise I should have taken nothing. But I am not to go home again. I did not mean to go home for a long while in any case, if at all. He drew his pocket-book from his breast and took from it the four white feathers. These he laid before him on the table. "'You have kept them?' exclaimed Such. "'Indeed, I treasure them,' said Harry quietly. "'That seems strange to you. To you they are the symbols of my disgrace. To me they are much more. They are my opportunities of retrieving it.' He looked about the room, separated three of the feathers, pushed them forward a little on the tablecloth, and then leaned across towards Such. "'What if I could compel Trench, Castleton, and Willoughby to take back from me, each in his turn, the feather he sent? I do not say that it is likely. I do not say even that it is possible. But there is a chance that it may be possible, and I must wait upon that chance. There will be few men leading active lives as these three do who will not at some moment stand in great peril and great need. To be in readiness for that moment is from now my career. All three are in Egypt. I leave for Egypt to-morrow. Upon the face of Lieutenant Such there came a look of great and unexpected happiness. Here was an issue of which he had never thought, and it was the only issue, as he knew for certain, once he was aware of it. This student of human nature disregarded without a scruple the prudence and the calculation proper to the character which he assumed. The obstacles in Harry Feversham's way, the possibility that at the last moment he might shrink again, the improbability that three such opportunities would occur, these matters he overlooked. His eyes already shone with pride, the three feathers for him were already taken back, the prudence was on Harry Feversham's side. "'There are endless difficulties,' he said. "'Just to cite one, I am a civilian. These three are soldiers surrounded by soldiers, so much the less opportunity, therefore, for a civilian.' "'But it is not necessary that the three men should be themselves in peril,' objected Such, "'for you to convince them that the fault is retrieved.' "'Oh, no. There may be other ways,' agreed Feversham. "'The plan came suddenly into my mind, indeed, at the moment when Ethne bade me take up the feathers and added the fourth. I was on the point of tearing them across, when this way out of it sprang clearly in my mind. But I have thought it over since during these last weeks, while I sat listening to the bugles in the barrack-yard.' and I am sure there is no other way. But it is well worth trying. You see, if the three take back their feathers— He drew a deep breath, and in a very low voice, with his eyes upon the table, so that his face was hidden from such, he added, Why, then, she perhaps might take hers back, too. Will she wait, do you think? asked such, and Harry raised his head quickly. Oh, no, he exclaimed. I had no thought of that. 
She has not even a suspicion of what I intend to do, nor do I wish her to have one until the intention is fulfilled. My thought was different. And he began to speak with hesitation for the first time in the course of that evening. I find it difficult to tell you. Ethne said something to me the day before the feathers came, something rather sacred. I think that I will tell you, because what she said is just what sends me out upon this errand. But for her words, I would very likely never have thought of it. I find in them my motive and a great hope. They may seem strange to you, Mr. Such, but I ask you to believe that they are very real to me. She said, and it was when she knew no more than that my regiment was ordered to Egypt. She was blaming herself because I had resigned my commission, for which there was no need because— and these were her words, because had I fallen, although she would have felt lonely all her life, she would none the less have surely known that she and I would see much of one another afterwards. Feversham had spoken his words with difficulty, not looking at his companion, and he continued with his eyes still averted. Do you understand? I have a hope that if this fault can be repaired, and he pointed to the feathers, we might still perhaps see something of one another afterwards. It was a strange proposition, no doubt, to be debated across the soiled tablecloth of a public restaurant, but neither of them felt it to be strange or even fanciful. They were dealing with the simple, serious issues, and they had reached a point where they could not be affected by any incongruity in their surroundings. Lieutenant Such did not speak for some while after Harry Feversham had done, and in the end Harry looked up at his companion, prepared for almost a word of ridicule, but he saw Such's right hand outstretched toward him. When I come back— said Feversham, and he rose from his chair. He gathered the feathers together and replaced them in his pocket-book. "'I have told you everything,' he said. "'You see, I wait upon chance opportunities. Three, three may not come in Egypt. They may never come at all, and in that case I shall not come back at all, or they may come only at the very end, and after many years. Therefore I thought that I would like just one person to know the truth thoroughly in case I do not come back. If you hear definitely that I never can come back, I would be glad if you would tell my father.' I understand, said Such. But don't tell him everything. I mean, not the last part, not what I have just said about Ethne and my chief motive, for I do not think that he would understand. Otherwise you will keep silence altogether. Promise. Lieutenant Such promised, but with an absent face, and Feversham consequently insisted. You will breathe no word of this to any man or woman, however hard you may be pressed, except to my father under the circumstances which I have explained, said Feversham. Lieutenant Such promised a second time, and without an instant's hesitation. It was quite natural that Harry should lay some stress upon the pledge, since any disclosure of his purpose might very well wear the appearance of a foolish boast, and Such himself saw no reason why he should refuse it. So he gave the promise and fettered his hands. His thoughts, indeed, were occupied with the limit Harry had set upon the knowledge which was to be imparted to General Feversham. Even if he died with his mission unfulfilled, such was to hide from the father that which was best in the son, at the son's request. And the saddest part of it to such as thinking was that the son was right in so requesting. For what he said was true. The father could not understand. Lieutenant Such was brought back to the causes of the whole miserable business. The premature death of the mother, who could have understood. The want of comprehension in the father, who was left. And his own silence on the Crimean night at Broad Place. If only I had spoken— he said sadly. He dropped the end of his cigar into his coffee-cup, and standing up reached for his hat. "'Many things are irrevocable, Harry,' he said. "'But no one ever knows whether they are irrevocable or not until one has found out.' 
it is always worth while finding out. The next evening Feversham crossed to Calais. It was night as wild as that on which Durrance had left England, and like Durrance, Feversham had a friend to see him off, for the last thing which his eyes beheld as the packet swung away from the pier was the face of Lieutenant Such beneath the gas lamp. The lieutenant maintained his position after the boat had passed into the darkness, and until the throb of its paddles could no longer be heard. Then he limped through the rain to his hotel, aware, and regretfully aware, that he was growing old. It was long since he had felt regret on that account, and the feeling was very strange to him. Ever since the Crimea he had been upon the world's half-pay list, as he had once said to General Feversham, and what with that and the recollection of a certain magical season before the Crimea, he had looked forward to an old age as an approaching friend. Tonight, however, he prayed that he might live just long enough to welcome back Muriel Graham's son with his honor redeemed and his great fault atoned. End of chapter 6